So we invited them to come over for coffee and uh, Indian naan, but we did it down in my home state and we had like six feet social distance while we had our coffee and naan, but we had, we had the most lovely two hours just chatting and laughing and telling stories. It, you know, first time that we did something like that, but it just, you know, it was so, it's so interesting. It's so precious, right? After being in your own little bubble, uh, or when you're out on the street, you just see the eyes of people with the mask. That's about it, right? This may be one of the, the benefits. I think that people will look at life differently after this situation because life is so precious and we, we always thought that it might be a crazy dictator in North Korea that would end the world. But it wasn't a it wasn't a megaton bomb. It was a little tiny virus that has brought the whole world to a standstill, right? The motorists don't like us because they feel that we're gonna slow them down. But what's what's wrong with a life that is slowing down a bit as we've seen from this virus? That was Jim Ward, and this is The Wildcast. So, we're now on episode 6 of The Wildcast, and I'm talking to a good friend, Jim Ward. He used to own Bliss Cafe in Baguio, for those of you who would come up to Baguio. It was one of the few fine dining vegetarian restaurants in town. He's an avid cyclist, he's also a Buddhist, and a very, very good friend. Over the years, I've looked to Jim as a calming voice, I think, for a young guy who is often on the verge of anger, on the verge of frustration. Jim has always been that guy who, when you talk to him, you just see things from a different perspective and you find that calmness that he himself has found over the years. He talks about his life in Asia coming to Asia at 18 as a young GI, living in China, Indonesia, and of course the Philippines. His life of cycling and advocacy he started with the daily cycle movement. And of course, Buddhism. And this really permeates every single cell of Jim's being. Listen to this conversation and be inspired to be a better person. I know I have. I find this very unusual, like, because you do live in Baguio and, you know, I could actually cycle to your house quite easily. <laughs> Previously, previous to this whole thing, I could cycle to your house and come see you and do this whole interview in person. Right. And, and right now you're seven kilometers away and we're doing it through an internet connection, which... I would do for anyone around the world, essentially. And that's like, I mean, it's definitely interesting times, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and you know, what I was thinking about as well, and uh, in, in essence, we've been living with this on our minds since, let's say, mid-February. And then we felt yeah. touched by it up here in Baguio, perhaps mid-March or early March, right? But... Sometimes you wake up from a nap or in the morning mm. and you just feel like, no, this hasn't been six weeks. This has been like six months. You know? Right. It, just, it right. just feels like this has been the state of affairs a lot longer, doesn't it? 
Right, right. I mean, right now it's like I'm I'm in a routine already. You wake up in the morning, you have your coffee, you have your breakfast. It's almost normal already for me. So it's a little unusual and, and I, I am getting a little bit anxious of how the world will be right after this. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of the economic damages of this is, you know, it's beyond what I can imagine. And it scares me. It scares me a little bit. I mean, I didn't realize I would have to live through something like this in my lifetime, you know. So anyway, thank you so much for agreeing to come and guest on my new podcast. This is, uh, I think, your episode six of this podcast. And well, thank you. You've been my friend for what is it, twenty years now? Not quite. I moved here seventeen years ago, and I suppose. I met you within the first or second year, so at least 15, maybe 16. Right, right. It's 15, maybe 16 years. I remember I remember going to your first, oh, maybe it was your second, your your second Bliss Cafe, which was along Leonard Wood. Was that was the second one, yeah. Yeah, second one, yeah. I think Kati Santa Ana was the one who brought me there uh, at the time. Could have been, have been Kathy was a good friend from, actually from the Firefly Brigade in Manila. And then when she got the opportunity to come up here and teach, uh, we were one of the network of friends that she knew from Manila. And, you know, actually it's funny, there's a strong connection between myself and the Fine Arts Department at UP because uh, Kathy... And uh, mm-hmm. she taught there, and then she was replaced by Joanne Medrano, who became a friend. And then Joanne was basically replaced by Farrah Manuel. So all of that's right. That's right. Bike connected and fine arts connected. Right, 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 right. Well, anyway, um, let's just start. It. Uh, how about you give me a short introduction on yourself? Um, where did you grow up? What was your education? What was, you know, the young Jim Ward all about? Uh, I know a lot of about you from your time in the Philippines, and you talk a little bit of your time in the army, and of course your time in the corporate world. But there is that gap between when, you know, when you were young, before you even moved to Asia. So who is this Jim Ward? to go into the military 
And my oldest brother, my middle brother did, did their time and they went back home and they settled in. But for me, there was kind of this, uh, this fascination with Asia right from the very beginning. I mean, when I arrived in Asia, uh, I was actually uh, in the military for only six years. So I don't How old were you? How old were you when you arrived in Asia? Yeah, I was just 18. So I was one of Oh the, wow. I was one of these guys that um, that uh, had a spirit of adventure and didn't have money for college or university. So at that time, it was very common that that people would go in and do a two or a three-year tour. And there was something that still exists in some form or another called the GI Bill. So you would give a couple years and then you would get X amount of money. Usually it would be enough for, say, your first year of university. So like a lot of people, I said, well, I'll go in, I'll, I'll learn, a, learn a trade. Uh, might not be what I'll do for my life, but in my case, I was trained to be a, a medic or a paramedic. And uh, then I'll go back. And uh, I'll use the money from the GI Bill for my first year of school and, and basically get going. But basically, for me, Asia happened. And uh, I fell in love with Asia. And that trip back home never really happened. So you're saying when you moved here to Asia, what, what country was it uh, that you first moved into? Well, I was assigned in the military in, in two countries while I was in Asia. Basically, uh, I ended up um, I ended up uh, re-enlisting because I I met my uh, future wife on a tour in Japan. I was working in a military hospital in Japan, so to pursue that relationship and and like I say, I was really taken with Asia. So uh, I ended up doing another tour. So of the six years in the military, I had. Uh, about a year and a half that I was with the infantry, uh, what they call the combat medic, and four and a half years I was in a clinical setting in military hospitals. And I worked in intensive care and I worked in uh, burn units. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially especially looking at our situation now with the, with the virus and you having that background working in essentially the medical field when you were in the army. Yeah. In particular, um, I, you know, one thing I can really relate to, we might talk about it a little bit later in this call, but we're, we're doing a, a really interesting project now with our, our local advocacy group for biking. Um, but what, one thing I can see an analogy is, we're basically, long story short, we're arranging within our biking community here in Baguio and La Trinidad, we're arranging to get bicycles lent for the duration of the need by our frontliners. Because what we saw is, of course, the level of the, the doctors and the senior folks in hospitals, they have their cars and they have they have uh, other means of transport, but the, the younger nurses and respiratory therapists and you know, that, that level of care that's there 24-7 in the hospital with the patients, they were really struggling to get back and forth. So the point, the point I want to make is when I see, when I remember when I was so young and I was in the military uh, and what we had to face in those days, and then 
I look at the young nurses that I'm dealing with that we're lending bikes to, and I see an analogy, <laughs> because this, this virus is a bit like fighting a war, and these are young people too, and uh, they didn't sign up for that, or they didn't perhaps expect it, but they're thrust into a situation of, you know, let's face it, a higher risk or danger, and it's really inspiring to meet them and and interact with them with the bikes because uh, they don't know. They don't know what uh, what the situation holds when they if they'll get the infection, what the repercussions could be. So I see a bit of an analogy, and also the fact that I was a medic in the medical field in the army uh, when I was young, and I look at these young nurses in Bagu and Lechernet, I, I get the affinity, and I it's a real pleasure to be able to have a a project that combines those elements and and the love of biking that I have as well. Right, right. That's 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 really interesting, and and we'll talk about that a little bit more later later on. And um, so, how was it that uh, you moved on from from being in the military? And what was the jobs like? What was the job market like when you started in Asia? Like coming from the military, a young medic. In sure. love with Asia. Sure, sure. So, uh, as I mentioned, my, my first wife was Japanese. And uh, I really enjoyed Japan a lot. And there was, there was uh, an interest to in learn the language. And I, I did pick up the language pretty well. And I, I still speak pretty credible Japanese. Uh, but it, it didn't translate. Being a medic or having licenses as a paramedic, as, a, as an EMT, working in burn units, it didn't really translate well to a civilian job in Japan. Uh, so I knew that I would need to go into the business field. So I ended up, um, you know, bouncing around at different things after the military, uh, newly married, young guy. I was about 24 when I got out of the military. Uh, uh-huh. And I, through a friend, I ended up uh, getting into the logistics field and logistics being uh, basically getting goods from point A to point B. So that would involve air freight, sea freight, trucking, warehousing. Um, we didn't talk about supply chain ma- management in those days, but basically that's what we were doing in Asia. And I ended up in that career uh for about 24 years and it took oh wow that was a long time yeah it took me to six countries um all in asia where i was either the managing director or regional director um so it really fulfilled you know uh the ability to make a living and my my love of asia my interest in asia uh, and which which countries were these that you you ended up in as a as a director for this company? Right. Well, I started out on the ground floor in Japan with a company that was uh, in the freight forwarding business. And, and this is all the same company, or did you move around different companies? Over those twenty four years, I was with three major groups. Uh, the first one was uh, U.S. based, but I was hired in Asia. And then the, the second one was a, a Japanese group, and the third one was uh, based out of Hong Kong. But, you know, in mm-hmm. logistics field, it's, um, of 
course, it's very international because you need to have links with operations in Europe and Latin America and so forth. So, uh, you know, somebody with wanderlust that loved Asia and loved to be on the ground and dealing with people, it was it was really a interesting and ideal industry for me. Right, right. And you do love, I, knowing you, you do love talking to people. I mean, you, you've owned a restaurant and you seem to... I mean, you seem to make friends with people on the street so easily. And you were telling me about the story with, um, with you know, cyclists that you meet along the street. You, you say hi, and eventually you, you invite them to come to the DCM rides. And I've I've always seen you as this sociable people person. You know, you you're probably one of the people who has friends from from like like such a wide array of. Uh, of kinds of people, you know, like when we were friends with Betty Jim all the way to, you know, the bikers in the street or the ones who work for Moog and, and things like that. It's such a, it's like a wide spectrum of people. I, I mean, personally, I'm not that type of person, but I really admire that you're able to, to, you know, go out there, put yourself out there. And, and I guess the job working around Asia, working with people sort of, build that in you if it wasn't in you yet at the time yeah you know actually um when i was younger like my time in the military i i guess i wasn't that outgoing um but i think it's something that i developed because uh you know in the logistics field we were dealing mainly with um international accounts like the the expatriate banks and the ngos and organizations like ADB and when you're when you're sitting on top of that um, getting the business uh, as a foreign company in an Asian environment and you're competing with the Indonesian companies or the Chinese companies of course that that foreign touch and that connection is is very important so I think I got more outgoing and then uh, I kind of developed into this over talkative people person that I am today <laughs> well, we're not complaining. We're very thankful for that experience of yours. And is this is Japan where you became a Buddhist and became a vegetarian, or is is this pre Buddhism, pre vegetarian life? Well, maybe maybe I'll go back to your earlier question just to finish that out. So I started right. in Japan and I I got into the industry and. Uh, there, you know, it's kind of a funny story because we, we often get into things that uh, we get into a job or we get into a task or something that, that was, you know, we, we just kind of fell into it, right? I mean, what we right. studied in school, like I mentioned that I, I went into the military right out of high school and then I stayed in Asia. I did study uh, and my background is in Asian studies through the University of Maryland. Oh, okay. So the way I was able to do that is the, the military had these overseas campuses and I was able to to work on my degree there. And that's how I gained a lot of my, my background about the history and my interest around Asia. But uh, from Japan, I was hired by uh, an American group to go to Taipei and start an operation for them. And then I mm. was asked to transfer by that same company from running the Taipei operation, where I stayed for three years, over to Jakarta, Indonesia, 
back in the in the 80s and then three years in Indonesia and then I was uh, sent to Manila in 1989 and that's the first time that I had kind of a regional role that I was looking after this company's uh, operations around Asia and uh, so I, I had actually two periods that I've lived and worked here in the Philippines. After the Philippines I was sent to Sydney and uh, then from Sydney to mainland China which was perhaps my most interesting assignment because those five years in mainland China uh, was when the doors were just being opened and so I had a lot of really unique uh, experiences but when I think about these years JP in Asia I, I think the thing that I'm proudest of is I've always had the ability um, I've always had the inclination and I, and I think perhaps the ability as well to adapt to the situation so we hear we hear these stories about the ugly American that comes to Asia and says, this is how we do things back in the States. I, I never really had that attitude. Of course, I was younger and I was learning in, in industry from Asian partners. So I was always able to adapt to, I was able to take best practices from Japan and apply them in Taiwan and see the Chinese twist on that. And that would carry mm -hmm. over to best practices in a place like Indonesia. And uh, right. I never really, you know, I was pretty effective. I was pretty well liked by our local partners. And I, I would say today I can go back to any of the six cities that I've worked in around Asia and I could have a, a glass of wine or a beer with my Asian partner from, from 20, 30 years ago. And it would be on good terms and good graces. And, and more than anything, I'm really proud of that because I think that's, nice. that's a skill that a lot of, uh, quote unquote foreign experts come over and they kind of burn bridges with their their attitudes and their approach to interacting with another culture right right no I, I completely understand I've worked with a lot of um, foreigners um, Americans expats and in general they tend to keep to themselves like they go to the same bars they consult with the same foreign expats they tend to not value as much the input of a local a local expert compared to let's say a foreign buddy who wouldn't have wouldn't even have the same credentials as as the local expert so i mean i i completely understand where you're coming from there and and that really says something about the, your values and and your character where you know you've you've lived in asia and in in many ways, you're a lot more Asian than many Asians. Uh, you've you've traveled to many parts of Asia that a lot of Asians, even Filipinos, have not been to, and and met so many people that are that are that are integral to you know the communities that that you live in. Um, uh, you, it's interesting. You, you said that you lived in China when it was still opening. This was in the 1980s. And now China's this, you know, it's this behemoth. It's, it's such a big country. It's the second largest GDP in the world. It's essentially this, it's, it, it's almost as big as the United States in terms of its economy. And how, how do you think, how, how has this whole landscape changed? Like you've, you've lived in all of these areas 
when we were all emerging economies, except for Japan. You you lived in Manila, you lived in Jakarta, uh, even Taipei was still just opening when you moved there. It wasn't, you know, the, the Taiwan that it is today, and of course China. And how has how how have you seen this whole region change over that time? So this is gonna be a six part episode, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, it's kind of hard to condense it. I, I think I've lived a really wonderful life. And, and, and I've always considered myself a student of, of the countries that I lived in. And you're right. I mean, my, basically the 1970s, I was pretty much in the military and I was in Japan. And then in the 80s, I was in Taiwan, Indonesia. I came into... Uh, the Philippines in the early 90s, and then China and uh, so forth, right? So I did see that I did see these countries go through shifts. I, I, I think a couple of examples I like to talk about is, first I'll talk about Taiwan. I lived in mm-hmm. Taiwan from 83 to 85. And Taiwan then, Taipei in particular, was one of the more polluted industrial and chaotic cities in, in Asia. Uh, in the middle of you know the central business part of, of Taipei, which is a sprawling city, you would have factories, you would have chaos. And uh, that is the period that Taiwan was, uh, you know, not really respecting uh, copyright. Uh, basically, if you came in with a machine, they would duplicate it and, and sell it out from under the patent. You know, but they cut their teeth on all that. They made their money, and then they changed. And and what I'm really impressed with, you know, as you go around, it's hard to say that there are cities that are much better off than they were years ago. But I go to Taipei today, and they once they made their money, they moved the industries out of the city. They started to put in parks. And Taipei today is gorgeous compared to what it was in the 80s. You know, it's, it's like a, another version of Seoul or, or Tokyo. So that's, that's one example that I saw Asian cities that uh, did the right approach to renewal and uh, so forth. And um, then when I look at China, uh, it was a very interesting time to be there. I, I was in mainland China from 95 to 2000. So those were the early days that a foreign company could come in, in an industry. Example, my industry was logistics. And they had just kind of opened the door for foreign companies to come in and operate. So I wouldn't say I was in the first wave. I was probably in the second wave of that happening. But a good example is uh, being in the logistics field, all the foreign companies that came in, they would need us because they had a product they either wanted to manufacture in China or import into China. So it was very funny when I first came to, I was based in Shanghai, but I had responsibility for nine offices around China. Wow. Um, and when I was first meeting with the lawyers, and these would be British lawyers that were out of Hong Kong that had also established in Shanghai, to, to kind of sort out the kind of structure that we could legally have in China. And it was was very interesting, JP, you'd be sitting in the waiting room um, of this prestigious law firm, waiting for your turn to go in and see the lawyers. 
And in this corner, there's the uh, there'd be a, a British guy carefully guarding his uh, his briefcase. And over here would be some Japanese, and here's some Australians. And everybody there was very secretive because they were sent by their companies, like I was sent by mine, to sell. The Dutch guy might be selling, trying to establish Heineken beer in China. And the mm. two Americans in the corner from Detroit were trying to get uh, Ford into China or Chrysler to manufacture cars. None of us were talking to each other because everybody wanted to be into that market first. And I think right, the, right. the advantage I had is we weren't competing with these. We were the... We were You're the, the service provider for all of them. Provider, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it was really a boom-boom period in logistics because we spoke the languages. We, we, at the time, I was with a group that had been in Asia 70 years already. So we knew we had partners on the ground. We knew. So if they said, how do we establish a factory in, in Wuhan? And speaking of Wuhan... <laughs> Uh, I've been there a number of times. Wuhan, mm -hmm. for what it's worth, uh, in those days, uh, was where the Chinese put the car industry. So anybody, right? It's a big manufacturing hub, right? It's, yeah, it's like a, it's a manufacturing. To, you know, um, manufacture cars. So in in Wuhan, we had clients like Fiat, uh, Renault. We had Volkswagen. We had Chrysler. Uh, and that's the way China was set up by the central government in Beijing. They would put different industries in different parts of China, just mm -hmm. like when you go to the uh, the city market here in Baguio, you have your fish section, you have your coffee section. That, right. So there was some sort of zoning in, in terms of how China developed their their cities for for industry. I, I think part of it is that the Chinese wanted to have a close watch on that. They didn't want foreign industries just spread helter-skelter across the country. So right. if they had the aircraft industry here, if they had the auto industry here, if they had uh, appliances there, you know, they could, they could mm -hmm. manage it better. The other thing is everybody in those early days was forced to, you couldn't have a wholly owned operation. You had to be... Uh, aligned with the Chinese government. So you were given a local partner and part of that was controls and part of that was actually so that they could learn processes and perhaps do it on right. later. Right, which is what they've done over the over the last <laughs> 30 years as well. And and was China the like was it as polluted back then? It was a very different country. When when you were there, I mean, this this was basically China 1.0 in the in, you know in the in the nineteenth century. Yeah, um, it was certainly getting there. Um, you know, with with my job and all this time in Asia, I, I was able to live in countries and then go back there and see them five years later, ten years later, twenty years later. So I think today they say that perhaps six out of the 10 most polluted cities in the world are, are in China. And that's just, you know, kind of that phase that Taiwan went through. Taipei was a very polluted and dirty uh, city, but they, they got through that stage. They put in controls. And, you know, I think China wants to attempt to do that as well over time. But um, right. it's all about money, money, money in the beginning, right? Right, right, right. And... 
you know, nowadays, actually, especially with this virus, there's there's a lot of hate being being pointed at China. And for someone who's actually lived there, worked with the people, how do you describe the Chinese people? I've 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 gone to China. I've been to Beijing. Uh, I didn't like Beijing. Beijing was people were not very nice, <laughs> but but. I found other parts of China, like I was in Inner Mongolia, and people there were ab- absurdly nice. And I really think that sometimes the stereotypes that we come up with are really ill-informed. And and with this virus now, um, the people of Wuhan, which, which you visited, they're just as much victims of the virus as we are at the moment. And and of course, worldwide, there's this now new hate against China. Uh, which is, of course, some is well-deserved hate, but also some, I think, would be misplaced given the Chinese people is not, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is a very different thing. And how would you describe um, the Chinese people as, as someone who's actually lived there? Well, you know, I lived in, in Taiwan, a Chinese environment in the, in the 80s, and then in the 90s, I lived in mainland China. And I think that's a good illustration because there there is that animosity, there's the history, there's the issues. But you basically the Taiwanese and the and the people in the mainland they have the same aspirations, they have the same viewpoint. So so much of this is political these days, as I think you would agree. Right. Um, people like Trump don't define, I think, the typical American. And we could say the same as we as we go around the world to different countries. And and now I just have to speak from my Buddhist perspective that um, you know in Buddhism we believe that uh, everybody's a sentient being, and our karma. Of, I'm not going to get religious here, don't worry. But our our karma is where what parents were born to and where we end up. But we have much more in common than than borders and, and boundaries and things like that. So. You know, it's interesting. Right before the coronavirus, I was—I tend to go every year to a year-end retreat in the north of uh, Thailand, and right. it's a pretty big retreat. It's uh, connected with the the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh out of Vietnam, uh, Plum Village, and there were 600 lay people from around the world. Lay people being not monastics, and then 200 monks and nuns, and. There was a big contingency there from Wuhan. And I also do speak um, a decent level of Mandarin. So, you know, I'm the kind of guy like, uh, I like to talk about, oh, I lived in your country and I, I use the language. And whatnot. Right, but right, right. It's, it's ironic that I kind of bonded a bit with the, I guess there was about 30 or 40 people from Wuhan. And there was even a doctor there who's an acupuncturist and I was, I was having some troubles with uh, a knee that has bothered me for a long time, and he was giving me some some treatments. And then, and then six weeks later, I started to hear about the Wuhan virus. And the first thing I did was was reach out to him uh, through their own version of, of WhatsApp. And, right, uh, WeChat, way, right? Yeah, uh, WeChat or Weibo is another one. And I'm I'm glad to share that uh, he made it through okay, and he wow he That's treated good. Good. Uh, patients with acupuncture uh, as a way to alleviate some of the pain and the suffering. So, 
you know, I'm giving you a long answer. Um, I think any time that we say, I'm American and I don't like this group, or I'm Chinese and I don't like that group, basically it's, it's pointless. And uh, I think there'll be a lot of finger pointing by nations. Uh, but I think that, yeah, for me personally, I think there's a, a deeper lesson and a greater meaning than trying to find fault when this whole thing is over. Right. It's, I mean, that's, this is why I always try and talk to you. You always come up with these really sensible, um, sensible things to say about, you know, about humanity and about people. You, you have this way of explaining things where maybe it's your Buddhism. I think it's, it's a lot of your experience over the years with many different people and like you know personally i've learned a lot from just interacting with you over these years and you know you've seen me grow from college essentially to to where i am at the moment and you know i'm i'm really thankful that i met you and you know you've been a friend for the last 15 years or so you know i feel exactly the same way and then the, the funny thing is only within the last 3 or 4 years i've kind of developed um a, a small relationship with your parents, right? And, That's and, true. Yeah. And I enjoy that as well because you know when I, when I see your parents, I see you and your parents, and I think it's the same with with my kids. I have two grown daughters, and and yeah, that's the whole cycle of life, right? So right. Um, you know, I, I think one misconception about Buddhism is that it's you, you have to be very diligent about it and you have to be vegetarian and you have to meditate a lot. The reality is it's just a philosophy mm. and it's a way to, to lead life. But uh, right. it's been a very useful tool for me and uh, it's a big part of what's made me very content and happy uh, living and moving around, around Asia. Right. And I have a last question about, you know, you living in all of these different places and you have this outsider perspective. I mean, essentially, you moved here. You weren't born here. You've had a few advantages, of course, as, a, as an expat in Asia. And you've lived in all of these places. What would you say is the most common thing between all of them? What, what is the common thread that ties this region together in your experience? I would say perhaps two things. I would say the importance of family, which is sometimes, um, I know when I say this, some Americans will say it's not like that in my family, but there's this sense of family that uh, is, is very endearing and, and long-lasting in, in the Asian communities. And there's also a sense of uh, history. And coming from a relatively young country like America, I think that that we we sometimes don't have that deep sense of, of tradition and history uh, that I find in Asia. Now, having said that, as, as you know, JP, um, I've seen you the last 15 years and you've seen me the last 15 years. Right. <laughs> as, as you know, I've, I've uh, mellowed a bit, perhaps from my, my corporate days and my cafe days and and now I'm retired. I'm fully retired four years um, in, in about a week from now. 
And I've had the opportunity to, to go to Europe the last two summers on, on biking trips. Uh, and, you know, I thought, I thought that Asia had everything. I thought that, you know, my, my fascination could be, but, but I'm, I've just been blown away by the cultures and the, and the vibe and the approach of, of Europe. Right, well. right. It's a very diverse area and there's so much history just like Asia. And one of the things I think I've liked about Europe in my visits is that the history there still exists up to now, which is for Asia sometimes it's not doesn't happen. Yeah, I would agree. I mean I you know, although you say, you know, Europeans and Anglo Saxon, right, but I would say your typical uh, your typical Spanish family or a family in Milan, they probably have more in common with a family in Hong Kong than they do with somebody in New York, right? So there's, right, that, there's right. that sense of culture and, and tradition and family um, that, uh, as a matter of fact, if this, if this world situation didn't happen, I was, I was hoping that this would be my third straight summer biking around Europe. So, um, yeah, I don't know how I jumped into Europe, but yeah, that would be my answer for both, for both Europe and Asia, the, the, right, the, right. the no, I, tradition. I, I completely agree. I think these older, and I would say, how would you call it, planted communities, because we have that history. We've been living here for a much longer amount of time. Has, has those traditions, it's the family's important, uh, those bonds, it's just like Europe. And, and also, um, of course, the community, uh, the community bonds are, are much, much stronger in these areas. Like Europe, uh, I've been, I was in Spain last year and I saw the same thing that you've been seeing over the last three trips that you've been there. And it's something that sort of reminds you more of Asia. Than, than the United States, where there's a lot more individualism and a lot more sort of less familial, uh, I would say. You know, I think if I remember right, wasn't it two years ago that at basically at the same time or maybe a week apart, I was in the north of Spain and you were down in the south? You know? Right, right. Yes, yes. We were in Granada, I think, by the time you were up north. And that would have been fun to get together. But I, I think what I'm describing, how at my age, uh, in my 60s, and I'm getting my, my first real serious taste of Europe, and you're mm-hmm. getting it in your in your whatever, late 30s or early 40s. Right. Um, I'm jealous because you, you have a longer period to develop that and enjoy it. True. Well, hopefully we can re-enjoy it after this COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, right after this, I'm sure airline tickets will be more expensive. Visas will be much harder. A lot of, a lot of things are going to change. So, um, uh, are you still there, Jim? I'm here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I was, I was going to segue into the Philippines and so how did you end up in the Philippines? What was that? What was that for you? How did how did that work out? Yeah. My my first actually my my first step now that I think about it I have talked about this before but believe it or not my first step into the Philippines was into Baguio. Um oh. 
I flew in from Japan in 1979, and at that time, Camp Chan A was still, of course, under the, the U.S. military. And we were coming over for a conference that was held in John Hay of companies in Asia that were doing some, some supply shipping for the U.S. military on Asia. So the first steps in the Philippines were way, way back 1979. I remember vaguely that I stayed at the Baguio Country Club, and that's the country club before it burned down. Uh, and I remember flying in, in those days there were uh, pale flights, so we, we flew into Manila, spent a night in Manila, and then flew up to Baguio. So I, my first taste of Baguio, which has turned out to be my home now, was, was way back in 79. Uh, then I was in here uh, a few times in the early 80s on what we used to call visa runs. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but sometimes when you when you live in different countries in Asia, uh, before you get your full status under your work status, you, you have to, after six months or three months, you have to fly right. out. You have yeah. to fly out and fly back in. So yeah. I would often come to Manila because it was, a, it was a cheap flight alternative from Taipei or, or Jakarta or wherever I was at. And then in 1989 uh, is when I was offered the regional job uh, for uh, a company out of San Diego in freight forwarding to run their Asian operations based out of Manila. So I moved here in 1989, and six months later, uh, I was living in the Ritz Towers in Makati when uh, our biggest coup happened. So right. I think that that was a very interesting uh, period, and there's there's a long story because uh, I was living in in one of the buildings that was taken over by the rebels, and and I actually uh, met uh, Gringo Hanasan at that time. Really, uh, in the building where in, you were in. In the building, and wow. then uh, uh, years later because it's a little-known fact that uh, he, he is uh, an advocate and a biker himself. So years later, I was at a, I was at a Century Ride event in Quezon Circle, and then he was a senator, and he was there uh, doing the, the kickoff of the ride, one of these Century Rides. It was actually from Quezon Circle all the way up to Subic. Uh, oh, wow. That's a long ride. And the funny thing is there was... There was only about four or five expats, I think, that were foreigners that were involved in the ride. So uh, I got grabbed by a friend. You know, they grabbed the foreigners and pulled them up to meet the senator, and and he was very pleasant and nice. And he said, "It's nice to meet you." And and I said, "You know, you know, senator, actually, we met um, at the Ritz Towers in 1989." <laughs> <laughs> no, what did he say? He kind of just smiled and and said, "Oh." Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was one of those little ironic moments that happened in life. Right, right. I don't that's, know. I, I mean, that's... I should, maybe I should have just let it pass. That, oh, nice to meet you, but I, I just felt like saying, no, actually, we've met before. <laughs> and you met him, he was, you know, he was the leader of the rebellion and at the time. And did he just walk up to you and say hi? How did that happen? Well, you know... It, it, 
what happened at the Ritz Towers was, uh, you know, it's, it's ancient history now, but, but a lot of your listeners may remember that there was a fallback position by the rebels where the negotiating point where they would take over different uh, condominiums and different hotels, like the Deuce Thai, the Intercon, and so forth. And they they didn't really harm anybody, as you remember, but they used they used the fact that we have these buildings under control. There's there's foreigners here. There's there's the elite and so forth of, of the Philippine society living in these condos. And they kind of used it as, as bargaining chips. Right. So uh, he was uh, in and out of several of these buildings. And uh, pretty much we were like quarantined now. We were <laughs> confined to our units. But sometimes we'd have to, uh, to go out. I think this went on for about three days, uh, as I recall. But we'd have to go out and get some supplies or get some groceries or whatever. So, you know. And- it was it was more of a in passing thing because he was kind of shooting around between all of these Different, areas, kind right. of controlling the, the flow of things. Right, right. Okay, so how how did that lead to actually living in the Philippines? I mean, you've you've been here for the last what was it, twenty years now? Or well, I've been in Asia something like forty five years, and almost half of it, about twenty two, twenty three years, has been in the Philippines. So. I was uh, assigned here twice in the corporate days, so 89 to 93, and then I came back in 2000, and uh, I've been here consistently 2000 until now, so 20 plus those early years, yeah, close to 24 years. Wow, wow. So half of my time in Asia has been intertwined or interconnected with, uh, with uh, the Philippines. Right. And and how did you end up in Baguio? How 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 did that happen? Well, uh in 2003 um and again, it's it's another great story. If if you remember that uh, the the SARS epidemic happened in uh in 2003. Right, right. I do remember the SARS epidemic. And I was just uh a short period out of China, and if you remember, SARS was felt to originate in Hong Kong. And mm-hmm. at that time, I was living down in Rockwell, and I was running our Manila operation. And in the heart of the early days of SARS, I came down with something that was feared to be SARS. It was the high fever, uh, all, all the other, all the elements that seemed to be SARS. So in that situation I can kind of relate to what's going on today. In my case, it turned out to be uh, a bad case of typhoid fever. So oh, wow. What had happened was I was doing a bit of mountaineering in those days. Uh, a couple of weeks before that, I had gone on a climb in Quezon that was an extended day thing, like a four-day thing. And we were running low on water, and I got a little bit reckless and started trying to boil water. Drinking from the stream. Water. Yeah. Long story short, in the midst of SARS and shortly out of living in China, um, I came down with typhoid fever and I was quite sick for about three, four months. And during that period, it kind of made me reevaluate, am I happy as a corporate person? Am I, so long story short, I I decided after that uh, brush with a, a serious illness to reinvent myself 
and with a, with a partner at the time, we moved up to Baguio. And mm -hmm. why Baguio? Because uh, I had kind of fond memories, and it was far away from the corporate life that I had in Manila. And as a vegetarian, it was also the source of, you know, it's the, the vegetable basket for all of the zone. So I, I, nice weather, artistic community, that's what brought me up. I left the corporate world and I, I opened up my own business. Right. And, and I know you're, you've been a vegetarian for how long now? Uh, it's been 17 years now. So I was kind of uh, a newer vegetarian when I moved up to Baguio, but I was maybe a year at that time. But I was so enthusiastic about it. And then when I was thinking about what do I really want to do post-corporate days, uh, all those years in logistics, and I said, you know what, I think a fine dining vegetarian restaurant and also uh, tied in with an art space is what I would like to do. Because I'd always been a collector of art. I wasn't an expert, but I, I like what I like kind of thing. Right, uh, right. And I thought that combination of, of fine dining veg, which really wasn't an option here in, in 2003, and uh, in art gallery. And that turned into uh, this cafe, which was a 10-year right. adventure. Right, right. And, and through Bliss Cafe, you've actually, like, you've built this entire community around Bliss Cafe of, like, these people who wouldn't necessarily know each other, but they all know Bliss Cafe. You know, there's artists, there's musicians, there's there's all sorts of people. Uh, my, my last guest, you said, was someone you met through Bliss Cafe, Nina. And you've met so many people throughout those 10 years through, you know, the cafe. I, I met you through the cafe. I mean, you know, I don't have to remind you that, uh, you know, when, when you were, I don't want to say starting out, I don't know what stage you was at, but you used to have a very unique and niche uh, tour that you would you would take people. That's true. Cool, yeah. Yeah. You take people up into the mountains, camping and and gourmet food and and coffee and and also a way to give back to the community. And then remember that what you would do, there would be small groups, five, six, eight people, and then your final dinner when you guys were back and unpacked and whatnot, you would bring everybody over to the cafe and have a, a nice dinner. And I That's think you right. Did that two or three times, yeah. Right, right. I do remember that. I think you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you met some of my my former clients actually came back to your cafe a number of times as well. A lot of them, yeah. <laughs> you know, we we probably did. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think that uh, you know the vegetarian scene is a lot more active now in Baguio and Trinidad, and some people have taking it on to different directions, but I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that we were the first one to, to have, you know, a proper serious menu and a nice setting and combining, as you say, music and art and Buddhism and writers. And, and yeah, I would say my whole barcada, my whole tribe that I have today now in my retirement years pretty much grew out of all those great people, you being one of them. So, yeah, it's been a blessing all the way around. Right, right. I remember all the all the articles uh, and and also the the exhibits that happened there. There were a lot of great exhibits that um, uh, that actually happened during the the whole ten year run of 
of Bliss Cafe. And I, I was actually able to go to some of those openings. We had, over the years, we had 72 exhibits because we would average about, an exhibit would run, you know, eight to 10 weeks. And so we'd average whatever that is, about five or six a year. Uh, and, you know, some of those artists, their, their very first steps uh, were their first show or their second show were in my cafe. And some of them have gone on to be some pretty serious artists here in the Philippines. Right, right. You, you, you created this space where some people like A.G. Sanyo, you know, their first places to exhibit was in Bliss Cafe. Yeah, exactly. And then we would also have, um, you know, because I'm a Buddhist, we, as you remember, we used to have Buddhist lectures and we would have reke healing and we would have drum circles and, you know, the, the kind of things that are being carried on today by places like uh, Mount Cloud and, uh, and other venues. I, I'm not saying that we were the first, I'm, you know, but we were, that's the, that's the community that I was trying to create. And I think we did created and it was a great ride and the funny thing is jp a lot of people say to me particularly when i retired and they mm-hmm. said well now that you're fully retired um what do you think about opening up your cafe again because there's you know there's good memories of the cafe and my standing joke is kind of a dad joke but i look them in the eye and i say what part of the word retirement do you not understand <laughs> right, right. I might be one of those people who've actually asked you to reopen the cafe so. <laughs> at some point. At some point, because you know, it, it, I really have so many great memories of Bliss Cafe. It's it's one of those places that was like a haven for for people like me and a lot of I would say lost people of Baguio artists. Um, you know, it, it was a community of people who, in some ways didn't have a community and, and you were able to create that through the cafe you know th- this is why like when, when whenever you're there there's so many different kinds of people you know you have you have doctors lawyers artists uh, people like me outdoor people and you know when you're in the cafe you're in the cafe and you talk to everybody there and it's it's this different community and i i sort of miss that we I'm not sure if we have the same kind of community now that we used to have, you know, when in, in the cafe days. The, but uh, that's what it is, you know, something's end and uh, yeah. we still have those memories. And, you know, it's, again, going back to my, my, my Buddhism, um, impermanence, right? If, 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 I was to, if I was to say, boy, those were the days, you know, how... I'll never have that happiness that I had with the cafe. I don't have that view at all. I think it was a great 10-year run, and uh, it served its purpose for that time. It's got its little modest place in the history of Baguio, and uh, that's it. But, you know, that's also the birthplace of Daily Cycle Movement, and, and you were that's very, true. You that's were very true. much involved in that uh, in those days. I remember, you know, I don't know, what, 15 years ago, how old were you, but... I remember you were the guy that we'd have a meeting about a ride we'd have coming up or something, and it would be pouring down rain in the rainy season, and you would have biked all the way from the Trinidad. That's right. <laughs> you'd walk into my cafe dripping wet, and you'd say, hey, uh, I told you I'd be here. I'm here. <laughs> right. Talk right. about dripping on your floor. 
<laughs> Sorry about dripping on your floor. Exactly. <laughs> I do but remember those days. You've always been, you know, excuse my French, but you've always been a bit of a badass, JP. <laughs> uh, just, just the odd person in the room, I think. <laughs> that, that odd person in the room who bikes in the pouring rain in Baguio. I don't think I would do that anymore these days. But yeah, I have, I have been known to do all of those things <laughs> at the time. And you, you talk about Buddhism quite a bit. So before we go into the whole cycling and daily cycle movement, how long have you been a Buddhist? Well, you know, I, I guess even in my, my early steps in Asia, I, I was exposed to Buddhism and I was curious and I was interested. And, uh, you know, you look at cultures, uh, of course, that's the era of the Vietnam War, and you look at cultures like, like Vietnam that are, that are Buddhist nations, and, and the influence of the way that uh, the Vietnamese looked at their wars with the French, looked at their wars with the Americans, and what they've come out with today, I think a lot of that is uh, impressive, and that's based in, in Buddhism. And I, I didn't grow up in a particularly religious family. Um, we were okay, but you know we were probably uh, go to church on the holidays kind of thing, on, on, the, on the religious holidays. So I wouldn't say I, I came to Buddhism from another tradition, but I embraced Buddhism as a philosophy, as a way of life. Uh, and I took my formal, what they call refuge vow, in um, 1983 when I was, excuse me, 1993, uh, in Tibet, when I was uh, working in, in Tibet. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um, I went to Tibet twice because once was for work. Uh, that was the time that they were starting to open some three-star hotels. And uh, I was involved in, 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 the furnishings but, and getting the goods into Tibet. Yeah, trans- transporting everything. And yeah, at this it, time, it was it was a very different Tibet. I mean, just getting there would have been quite an issue, right? It's a big issue. So, so <laughs> that that trip, the business trip, uh, what what happened? I was actually in there. I was there from the logistics side, and I was there with a Japanese uh, designer. And the mm-hmm. designer was there to look at the aesthetics of the hotel and to see. You know what kind of furniture I mean at that time there was no first-class hotel in Lhasa and we worked together uh, that on that uh, project and then uh, as we were leaving we kind of looked at each other and said you know this is an extremely poor area there's political issues here there the food's not great the the level of sanitation is not great but yet there's something that the people have here that uh, I wish that I had, and and you know this fellow from Japan, this this uh, interior designer, me, so logistics guy, we we both felt the same. So I that's when I formally kind of took my my what they call refuge vows, and so mm-hmm. I guess you would say I've been a practice practicing Buddhist for about twenty seven years now. And wow, I'm, I'm very active with that in the Philippines. Um, and but the Buddhism think, you the Buddhism you practice isn't the Tibetan Buddhism, right? One is Tibetan Buddhism. That that goes back to that period in Tibet, uh, and it's a group based out of. Uh, it's a Tibetan teacher based out of the UK uh-huh. called Kadampa Buddhism. And the other one, since two thousand and eleven, 
East Thich Nhat Hanh or, or what Plum Village Buddhism. So basically, it's a long story, but Tibetan Buddhism and, uh, and uh, Zen Buddhism, they have a lot in common, and it's kind of the yin and yang of Buddhism. So I, I often say that uh, because I, I, I'm active in, in two groups here and, and still lead what is, is called the Sangha here in the Philippines where we meet at the, at the Baguio Buddhist Temple, and I say that, uh, you know, being a Buddhist, because people say, well, if you're a Buddhist, wouldn't you be happier retired in a country like Thailand that's, that's Buddhist, so you're in a Buddhist environment? And I, mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to be a Buddhist in a country that's predominantly Catholic, because it gives you more opportunity through, through your example and the way that you lead your life to, to show the positive act, aspects of, of being Buddhist. And as right. you know, there's a lot of uh, Catholics uh, and other religions that that have this interest in Buddhism. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's not a bad thing to be a Buddhist in a non-Buddhist country. I guess is what I'm saying. Oh yeah, I mean, like like anything, you you've been a part of these uh, multi-sectoral groups with Bedejim and Sister Perla and all of these other other religious people, and I think. It's all about just respect, right? I mean, it's, it's respecting each other and respecting beliefs and learning from each other as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think both of us, when we, when we talk about Imam and, and what he meant to us as a friend, um, how foolish would it be for either one of us to ever uh, make any judgment about Islam, knowing somebody who is such a pure... Exactly, exactly. Religion, I mean, right? so, from yeah, the, way, the way that we interact with people should shape us. <laughs> right, um, right. And, and I think there's, there's just a lot of preconceived notions about, you know, other people, other religions. And, and I'm so grateful that, you know, to have Imam in our life and, and you and so many different varieties of people that it's, it's really enriched who I am right now. I mean... I, I grew up in a Catholic family. My grandparents are both Catholic. My mom is religious. And and then you have, you know, Imam. I learned pretty much the entire Islamic culture from him, just, you know, biking with him, riding with him, all those experiences over the years. And then, of course, Buddhism with you and all of these things. And and it's it's really been so enriching for me to to learn all of these different cultures from, you know, so many different people. And I think just interacting with you has made me much more, I would, I would say, knowledgeable about how the world works and how to communicate with other people and, and you know, to be a bit more tolerant. Although these days I'm a, a little more on the angry side with the politics that's happening all around us. But, but yeah. <laughs> Well, amen to that. I mean, um, I one reason I agreed to this is, of course, it's nice to share my story and my experience. And, and I think that these kind of events that we are finding time for now in the time of Corona that, you know, I know I've enjoyed listening to some of the other people that you've talked to. And I, I was really, you know, uh, stoked that you asked me as well. And, and like you say, we, we've had this great 15-year friendship.
And I remember at the very end of it, as uh, at the very end of Bliss, uh, I guess we had two more months to go or something. That's when you first walked in with Candy. And I remember that dinner vividly when I first met Candy. And now, you know, Candy's a dear friend of mine. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm just really blessed. You know, I right. I call myself a Baguio boy. And, uh, you know, the only thing I'm lacking is the, the language. And uh, I don't own a horse yet, but I do live near Wright Park. So who knows? <laughs> well, and now cycling. Like cycling has been such a huge part of your life. It's It's sort of how we met in a way with the daily cycle movement. And how how has that that whole thing come about? I mean, you've you've been cycling for a very long time. You've been a bike advocate, a bike commuting advocate for a long time. And can you walk us through how this came about? Yeah, for sure. So actually, if you didn't ask me that question, I would have found a way to to share it because I I always tell people this story. Uh, like a lot of people, I'm sure, including you. We, we all kind of learned to bike as kids and we would run around our neighborhood on bikes and, and we'd have a good time. And then we'd hit those, whether it's Chicago or, or Baguio or London, we'd, we'd hit those teenage years where the attraction was to get dad's car kind of thing, right? So I biked as a kid. I gave it up uh, for many years. I still knew how to ride a bike, but yeah, I was, I was a corporate guy. I'm running around. It was 1993. I was in Manila. Uh, it was a Thanksgiving, the American Thanksgiving, and I was at a friend's house uh, in Forbes Park, and we had this huge Thanksgiving dinner at his house, and we were sitting there on the couch, totally stuffed, and uh, barely able to move. And he looked at me. He was a Chinese American. He was a banker with Chase Bank. He looked at me and he said, "He said." What do you think about uh, if we went out for a bike ride? Just just bike around the village here a little bit. And you know, Americans, JP, we can be kings of sarcasm, right? So I, I was a bit of a smartass, and I, I looked at him and I said, I said, Kai, bike ride? I said, what are we, like 12 years old? Huh. And he looked at me, and he was quiet for a minute, and he said, he had this smile on his face, and he said, he said, no, Jim, we're not 12. But he said, wouldn't you kind of like to feel like you're 12 again? And, you know, JP, that was like, <laughs> that was like, in Buddhism, we have enlightenment, right? He was right. like a bodhisattva for me because I sat there for a minute and I said, yeah, I guess I was pretty happy when I was 12 years old. So right. We went, we went out to his garage and, and he had a good racer bike because he was into biking. And he had another piece of crap mountain bike, which was mine for that afternoon. And we went out and we just rode around uh, Forbes Park. It was quiet on, on a holiday. And it was, it was amazing. And then about two weeks later, uh, he said, why don't we uh, get the bikes and, and go out Laguna and we'll bike around Laguna a little bit. And uh, then I bought a bike. It was a crap bike. Uh, fell apart after a couple of months, and then I bought my first serious bike. So that's how it happened. You know, I rediscovered the love of biking. I that is I, a great story. That is, that's you know, a that, that's, a, that's a really, really good story. <laughs> so I guess I would say that to anybody that says, well, 
why why would a grown man have this passion for biking? And I, that's my answer. I I would say you're not 12 anymore, but don't you want that kind of feeling? And you that's know, I, true. I don't have to convince you. I know you have the same love affair. There's this feeling yeah. about getting from point A to point B under your own speed, at your own speed, to go fast or to stop, to smell the flowers or not right. smell the flowers. It's, it's at the human pace, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> it's this pace where you can actually stop and say hi to someone on the street if you see them. You know, it's, it's not something you can do in a car. Like when you're on a bike and you see someone you know, you can just say, like, "Hey, <laughs> you know, stop, say hi to them, and you know, have a chat, and then get going." In a car, that would be almost impossible to do. So, anyhow, and that, um, that's how, it started. how did that lead to? How did how did this whole love of, love affair with bikes um, lead to? this whole advocacy for bike commuting after this were you like did you become automatically this bike commuter around metro manila not so much in manila although i worked i lived in makati and i worked in uh in sukat area so on weekends i would um you know, there was. I, I guess it still goes on that it's a five-day work week, but people work the half day on Saturday. So as the as the senior guy, it was quiet in the office on the weekend. So I would bike from Makati out to Sukat using the the side roads, and I even even in the cast of Manila. And then this banker friend of mine that I'm talking about, we would. Yeah, so I, I, I'm really one of these bikers that I don't need a trail. I don't need pristine environment. I mm-hmm. bike, uh, you know, I'm more of a city biker. I'm more of a street biker. And I just, you know, I just love the, the sights and sounds of, of and, and I also think you, our community of bikers, you really meet some interesting people. There are, right, it's such a big variety, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, there are pretentious bikers, but they're, they're a little bit more few and far between. You know, mo- most people, whether they're very successful or very simple, uh, the bike brings us all together. And there's not the pretense of, uh, of uh, it's more like what brings us together than what separates us in the biking community. Exactly, exactly. So it's funny because now I have some friends who call me the shorts wearing uncle you know i'm that uncle that's always in shorts you know still on my bike in his late 30s and i i know you know this because you've gone through this whole thing and you still are that shorts wearing uncle you're the shorts wearing lolo and you know we've, we've both grown um grown through this whole thing with the bikes and the advocacy of of bringing, you know, a more bike-friendly city to Baguio City. And recently, I haven't been that involved, and I'm sorry about that, but, but recently, I think in the last two years, we, when we started the Daily Cycle Movement in, what was it, 20, 2006 or something like that? Exactly, there, 2006. There was a lot of, I mean, we did a lot of things, and then it petered out, and then, and then in the last two years, there's been a whole resurgence again 
of all these cyclists uh, from Baguio and Trinidad, and they're joining the daily cycle movement. And there's a lot more people cycling to work, cycling for fun, and a lot of this. And can you take us through the whole, like, this whole reemergence of the daily cycle movement? Yeah, well, you know, like a lot of things, um, I, I would say it, it's another podcast on its own, right, biking, but. I, I would say the short version is that in the in the community's mind, the non-cycling community, they look at bikes as something that people grow out of. They look at bikes as something that, yeah, there's that biking area there at Burnham. You know, why, why don't you guys just bike around and circle there? Right, right. This is this is why we're both like the the shorts wearing uncle and Lolo. <laughs> That's what they think of us, like immature adults. Who still exactly. ride the bikes? And um, so we started with a core group that was you and I and Imam and uh, and and Bob and Kathy and later Farah. So it right. was it was uh, I guess we were all fringe people to some degree or another, right? And right. we started a community, and then everybody got busy. I mean, uh, you got more busy with your you were running kind of a a small tour thing as we talked about and then you got more into conservation and, and, and race organizing and your NGO work and you were traveling abroad and and Imam got busy running more uh, mosques and, and more senior in the community and then our professors moved down from UP Baguio to the bigger world of UP Dilliman and suddenly I was just kind of standing there alone right <laughs> And then my life got busier and busier with the cafe. And then I think the resurgence was, honestly, when I retired, I said, you know what? I missed that. And and I think this is a whole, because there was that four or five year period of not much going on. And right, saw, that's true. And more and more young bikers out there. And I said, I said, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of sports activity. If you want to join a ride, if you want to join a race or a competition, but... But that's only, you know, 10 or 11 events a year. We need something consistent. And we need to show people that, yes, Baguio is hilly, and there's no bike lanes, but it's also... It's possible. Yeah. So the resurgence was, um, I found another two or three people that were like-minded, and a couple of them were business people in the CBD that had a few connections with city hall and you know things so that we could get our permits smoothly again and then there was this huge younger community of bikers that were you know 16 to 20 years old that that weren't really with us the first time around and, right, and it right. just took off it took off i think the other difference is the first go around it was like we would get people that were involved in the advocacy side of it but mm-hmm. with this reemergence of daily cycle movement, it's like suddenly the triathletes and uh, the folding bikers and the fixie bikers and the and the downhillers. I saw it. <laughs> the yeah, downhillers. The downhillers. So they all said, you know, we do our own thing, but a few times a month, we should all come together for something that is about advocacy because. The more that we stand together, the more of a force that we are for respect with the police and city hall and, right. you know, because we've, you... All, we've all fought these battles over the years, you know, like 
over the years, can we use John Hay? Can we go on this right. trail for downhill? And when we're a group of scraggly bikers and somebody says you can't do it anymore, right? But and now I, re- we, I now remember. We yeah, I, I remember when uh, John Hay was still close to bikers, right. and we were all part of working on that to change. I remember when, when the time was, you know, John Hay was so strict, bikers wouldn't be allowed inside, and what was it, maybe 20, must have been 2010, when they changed the policy, or something like that? It was, uh, because, it was because of you, and, and at the time, uh, we had an ally with Michelle, who's now over in Australia. Right, right. I remember yeah. that. And, you know, DCM had a big part in opening up John Hay. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you, actually, about DCM is, you probably have gotten this quite a bit, and, you know, you're an American, you're white in, in Baguio. Do you have any difficulty organizing all of these community events given that you know you're a foreigner and i mean for me you're a local but for some others you might not uh i mean you don't look like a local in 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 their eyes and is there some difficulty you've had uh with dcm and you know the monthly rides that have uh made it difficult for you as a foreigner honestly no and i'll tell you why because particularly in this second um resurgence of DCM, we, we really have a core group and I'm the only foreigner. So we have a very active biker who is uh, a senior policeman. We have another biker who is uh, very involved with the barangay there in Malcolm Square. So I'm, I'm kind of seen as the, the Lolo or the, the, the founder, but I'm not really the one. I'm at all the rides, but I'm not really the one uh, organizing with the city and and the face of it. I'm very active on social media. I I run our page Mm -hmm. and I work with things like the the bike group that we're doing now for the frontliners. But yeah, I've never seen it as an advantage or a disadvantage being a foreigner. I wish I spoke to Okano. That would be a lot more useful. For sure. (laughs) And and you spoke of the frontliners and, and... Early on in this discussion, you were talking about how um, DCM is actually organizing to help them out. And can you take us through the what's happened with the frontliners now? Sure, sure. So we wanted to do something. And a lot of people want to do something. You know, in, sorry, here I go with Buddhism again. But in Buddhism, we say a very common concept you've heard is no mud, no lotus which basically means that without the mud, that where the lotus plant comes from, that creates a beautiful lotus, right? So there's a lot of mud around right now. That's the coronavirus. And the lotus is the, the bravery of our frontliners and the community that's coming together to feed them and clothe them in protective gear. So we said, well, what can we do? And then we recognized that with the lockdown, there's no more jeepneys. And like I said, the the level of the younger nurses and whatnot, they, they don't have cars, they don't have private. And I was, I was shocked to hear that, you know, uh, I shared with you that uh, we have bikers that work, sorry, we have nurses that work in La Trinidad, sorry, they work at Notre Dame, they live in La Trinidad, 
yes, they're young, but they were literally walking an hour and a half to go to their shift, do a 12-hour shift, and then walk back home. So I said, okay, we can do something about this. And our community is about 1,200 members on Facebook, and probably 300 of those 1,200 are actually here in Baguio and very active. And uh, it's a very simple situation. We we provide the front. We do a bit of a background check. We we certify that they are you know where they work and what's their role and are they really you know qualified because we have a limited you know amount of bikes. Uh, and then we we arrange once that's done, which is a very easy process. We can get a bike and the lights and the helmet and the vest and everything else that they need including a little bit of training on city riding if they if they're uncomfortable with that and they're good to go and that's you know i think everybody at this crisis time whether it's uh whether it's donating money or it's if you own a restaurant and you feed the emergency room at bgh or you we have a common friend joe bell that he and his wife turned their their carving business into producing uh, face shields. Right, that's true. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the lotus that's coming out of the mud of this virus. And I'm just happy that DCN can be part of that. And we also have to be very honest with you. We have two ulterior motives. The first one is we hope that after all this is over, Buddha and God willing, that our hospitals will have bike racks and we'll see. Yes, definitely. That's something that we all need. Yes. We'll see see increased numbers of doctors and nurses biking to work and and that's all about preventive medicine and whatnot. And secondly, we hope that the city fathers and the government and the LGOUs don't see us as uh, a minor factor or even a nuisance at places like Session Road, and that we are welcome. And, and the value of the bikes, not only to the frontliners, but, you know, JP, you've seen it. A lot of people uh, have dusted off bikes in their garage, and we see them on their essential needs day. You know, we, we've right. gone back to the basics with this virus, and we, we know that we're not going to become the Amsterdam or the Madrid of Asia. We're not going to have bikes everywhere, but we just I agree. We I agree. We, we don't want silly excuses like, "Well, it's dangerous for you to bike on Session Road." The real issue is the motorists don't like us because they feel that we're going to slow them down. Exactly. What, what's wrong with a life that is slowing down a bit, as we've seen from this virus? That's beautiful, Jim. That that is really beautiful. And and no, I agree completely because you know we've been working on the whole Session Road thing for i don't know more than 10 years now and it just keeps coming back to haunt us it's not something that just disappears um a law that was written in the 1940s is still in force today banning bikes from session road and i always find it funny when when all these all these cars honk at you climbing up the hill as if the effort of pressing on the accelerator is so difficult in comparison to a cyclist like cycling up Session Road, and, and I was like, oh, you know, like 
you're going at you can't really go fast on session road even if it's empty you can go at maybe 30 kilometers per hour would be the fastest you can run up session road on the, on a motor car and with a bike you can go maybe 10 kilometers an hour and which is you know perfectly okay and i think we start we need to we need to really start looking at bikes as a as a mode of transportation in the philippines we've been only looking at it as a sport you know bikes are sport bikes are when you see a cyclist you always always think of you know lycra or the downhiller but a lot of people in fact a lot of low uh, we say minimum wage earners use bikes to extend their budgets and that's something that um, that they be, I mean policymakers don't understand. You remember my my friend Donny um, Donny Gonatise. I he, right, yeah, he biked with me for the Pajak Parasabinhi before, and he has been biking to work every single day since he started out working in Luwakan. He he lives in Kenon Road. He bikes to Luwakan every day, and a few years, this was years ago when we calculated how much he saved. I mean, he saved enough essentially cycling to work to buy a car, which eventually he did buy a car. <laughs> and I don't know, now I haven't seen him in a couple of years, so I'm not sure if he still b- bikes to work as much with a, with a now that he owns a car. But, you know, like you bike to work enough that you save up to half a million pesos or a million pesos over the years. That's significant, and and for low wage earners, especially now in this time when the economic, you know, this economic crisis is going to hit right after the the viral crisis, that's important for a lot of policymakers to look at. Well, I fully agree with you, and you know, you and I have been on the same sheet of music for a long time. And then I just like to leave the subject with uh, with this thought that uh, you know. In, in Europe, again, in Europe, they, they have the priorities straight, which is the automobile and the bicycle and the pedestrian. We all need and deserve our space. The second issue is how silly to ban bikes from Session Road when we know that the heart or one of the hearts of the pollution problem is that base area of Session Road. That's where the smog and, uh, and the pollutants from the cars, it all congregate. So, why are we still in a situation that uh, we, we know that everybody's not going to sell their car and get on a bike, but the influence is important. And why can't we uh, slowly or hopefully quickly uh, mature our look at that, uh, right. that situation? And, I, and I, mean, I, think, I, I, I think, again, what we're going through now, uh, this may be one of the, the benefits. I think that people will look at life differently after this situation because life is so precious and we we always thought that it might be a crazy dictator in North Korea that would end the world but it wasn't a it wasn't a megaton bomb it was a little tiny virus that has brought the whole world to a standstill right 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 and that you know maybe we should end it on that note Jim that's like beautifully said and you know like i i totally agree with what um what you just mentioned and you know we keep working 
on all of these things, even though it seems futile at some point. But we're at this point. This is a turning point for humanity. This is a turning point for Baguio City. And I uh, really hope we learn the lessons. I just have a few last questions before I let you go. What is the best advice you've ever received? And what advice would you give yourself, like your younger self, if you could give it now? That's easy. The best advice I was given was through my Buddhist practice. <clears throat> and that is that anger serves zero purpose and when I was younger I wouldn't say I was a toxic person but I was yeah a corporate guy uh, you know doggy dog world anger and it, it brought me a lot of hardship and a lot of unhappiness and perhaps even to those around me so I would say that letting go of anger totally and embracing compassion in whatever we do that's what's brought me you know to my age right now to a very very happy existence and that was my friend jim ward he has lived such an interesting life in asia coming in at 18 going through the corporate world, finding Buddhism. He always has these tidbits of knowledge, which whenever I talk to him, are probably some of the most insightful things that I have added to my life. And I am so, so grateful that he's a person I have grown up with. He's a person who has guided me through this life. And I'm grateful he's around for all of you to listen to. Thank you for listening to the Wildcast. And if you enjoyed that episode, please hit subscribe or follow or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and that really helps us to continue doing this podcast. And please share this with your friends. Share it with people who you think would benefit from listening to the conversations we have. And see you on the next Wildcast. On the next Wildcast, we have... Upcoming is Manix Abrera of Kiko Machine, and that was one hell of an interesting conversation.